UK Cambridge Centre podcast. In this Integrated Cancer Medicine Research in Focus series, I talk to various ICM members about their research and how it is supported by the vision of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine. MFICM research uses cutting-edge analytics to maximise the use of diverse high-volume datasets and by capturing cancer heterogeneity in time and space in patients receiving active treatment. Integrated Cancer Medicine aims to transform the way the world treats cancer by affecting patients along their treatment pathway and ultimately accelerate cures. Today I have with me Dr. Dario Bresson to talk about the IMAX-T project and how it fits in with the Integrated Cancer Medicine vision. Dr. Bresson is head of the IMAX-T laboratory at the CRUK Cambridge Institute at the University of Cambridge. So thank you for joining me today, Dario. Can I ask you to start with, could you please outline what the IMAX-T project is? Yeah, so gladly. To begin with the, the name, uh, it stands for Imaging and Molecular Annotation of Xenografts and Tumors, which is a mouthful, I think we can all agree. In the beginning, it was just IMAX, uh, because we wanted to capture the idea of doing things in large resolution and in space. So, of course, IMAX cinema. We had to put a ticket that they would sue us otherwise, and they'd probably win. But the, the key idea is making a three-dimensional single-cell resolution map of a tumor. If you think about... Uh, Google Maps. Now, Google Maps, in a way, changed things for, for looking at maps, from just looking at a paper, something to look at an interactive map where you can zoom in, zoom out, click on individual buildings and know exactly what's inside, how they are connected, how you go from A to B, and so on. That's an infinitely easier problem than what you're trying to do. First of all, because you know the surface of the Earth is two-dimensional and the tumor is three-dimensional. And second, because the number of information that you need to capture to really know what each element of the tumor is doing is infinitely high. So we are stringing together a series of technologies, all of them pretty cutting edge, some of which didn't even exist when we started, to build this interactive map that you can literally enter inside. And I'm not actually joking. We have a department that does virtual reality. When you have an app that you can literally enter inside of the tumor and analyze it. And the idea is that having all this information at your fingertips, the whole molecular makeup of every cell of the tumor at your fingertips, give you a much bigger chance to understand how the tumor is evolving, how it's responding to therapy, how it's changing in order to avoid the intervention, how it's proliferating and propagating outside of the main tumor to form metastasis. And ultimately, this all goes back to better diagnosis, better stratification of therapies that we already have, to target the right patients and potentially development of new therapies altogether. And you can actually walk inside the tumour with a VR headset on, is that correct? That's correct, yes, it's, it's pretty cool. That's very amazing. Are you able to take different shots of the tumour as it develops and as it responds so that you can see the developing, or is it just a one-shot of this particular tumour? So the technologies that we have are disruptive, meaning that the sample that we are imaging is, is that, doesn't exist anymore afterwards. We can take a shortcut to that by looking at biopsies, for instance. So we can look at subsequent biopsies of the same patient, or if we use animal models, uh, which of course it's always um, a plus and minus situation, but if you use animal models, which are relatively stereotypical, where a tumor tends to develop always in the same way, you can take it at different stages or before and after therapy or with and without. 
and then make a comparison. Actually, that's a pretty large portion of, of what we do. So yes, it doesn't give you the dimension of time immediately out of the box, but there's ways to trick yourself into it. Amazing. And so when did the project start and how is it funded? The vision for this started actually in 2014, 2015, where uh, our laboratories, I, I'm part of the Hanlon laboratory before we sort of branched off in what we are now. Uh, we moved here from the US. We used to be close to New York. And I've always had this dream of doing spatial measurements, of doing sequencing, but being able to do it in space so that you would preserve all the relationship between cells. And the time being, the laboratory was working of breast cancer already, did a pretty long history of doing that. I was working on a number of projects holding this idea of spatial profiling. The catalyst for really all this to happen was then, I think it was 2015, Cancer Research UK came up with the Grand Challenge Initiative, which was a pretty blue sky idea, right? It was, we're going to put 20 million pounds on the table for multidisciplinary, multi-laboratory groups to fix uh, the biggest challenges in you know, oncology. And here's a list of challenges, which all of those essentially now are impossible. The idea is that we're going to give you a ton of money and five, six years to fix it. One of them was, can we map a tumor cell by cell? And getting Greg and I had a couple of email exchange back and forth and said, look, this is us. We, we, we're going to try this. And then we involved most of the rest of the laboratory. We actually had some close collaborators that were already very interested. We branched off to reach some other collaborators. And so I mean, fast forward, we, we applied for this and we actually got one of the first four grant challenge grants to, to do this. And then with, with that incredible amount of resources, we started in 2017. And we've been going until now, and we are now in our last year of the of the ground, where we're starting to reap uh, uh, the the fruits of what we saw at the beginning. And I, I want to stress that it was a very, and if you want, dangerous and ambitious thing to do for a funder, because we haven't actually got a lot for the first two or three years of the grant, because there was so much infrastructure to build, just to get people to collaborate, just to have the computational system to handle this data, nothing existed, right? That was science fiction. And then before you started to get anything out of it, there was a very long lead time. But I mean, they, they stuck with us and we stuck with ourselves. So now, now, we, now we finally have something to show for it. Yeah, it's an amazing project. It's, as you say, an amazing thing to have the vision to fund, an amazing thing to have the vision to build. So would this technique work with other types of cancer? You've mentioned it's specific to breast, but would it work with other types of cancer? Well, absolutely. As a matter of fact, we are uh, branching off to other types of cancer now. We, we needed to start from somewhere. We started from breast for two or three reasons. One of it is that it's it's clearly, especially triple negative breast cancer, it's it's a cancer where the need is is enormous. If you think about it, I mean, what one in seven women worldwide will get it at some point, right? And uh, at least for, for some of them, prognosis is pretty good. For some of them, there's still a lot of problems. And some of those can come back 20 years after they've been treated. So there was clearly a lot of need. Uh, the second is that it was the kind of situation where we know a lot about it. There's been a lot of work uh, done on it, actually a lot of it from this institute, which showed all the genomic diversity and uh, all the information. So we, we know quite a lot of how it works at the genomic level. I, I'm sure that you probably have covered before the personalized breast cancer genome initiative where now every woman that comes here gets their cancer uh, sequenced. But at the same point, we knew so little about it because there was a situation where a hundred women come in, 
they have all the exact same genetic fingerprint of the tumor. 60 of them, the therapy works as you expect. 20, it works very badly. 20, it works much better than you expect. You have absolutely no idea why. And the idea was that it had to somehow depend on all this layer of interconnection of how exactly each tumor interacts with the body that surrounds it that you could just not resolve with traditional methods. So we thought, okay, we can make a difference here. We can give that step. But the technology itself is agnostic to which tissue you apply it to. So it will work with other tumors. We are applying it to ovarian right now. There's talks of applying to, uh, to lungs. We have got something looking at renal. So I would say every solid tumor can really work with this. Liquid tumors like lymphomas or so on, less so because they don't have such a clear spatial uh, structure that spatial methods don't, don't really work. Like any solid tumor should work. You've touched on it a little bit, but what data does the project incorporate? There's no single technology that can give us all that we're looking for. So ideally you would want a box where you, you put a piece of a tumor in, you get out with a complete 3D model with all the information. In reality, it's not like that. Some technologies are really good at giving you gene expression information. Some technologies give you protein expression information, but they don't do it in 3D. Some technologies can give you 3D images, but they don't give you much information at all. They basically just give you images. So what we do is we start with the tumor. Uh, we embed it into a block of a very hard gel, some sort of matrix. Then we put it into an instrument, which is called serial to photon tomography. It's essentially a giant room-sized microscope, which is the, kind of the love child of a microscope and a microtome. So it takes images of the tissue, but then it also sections it in very, very paper-thin sections, which then get automatically collected. We have a robotic arm that picks them up and then collects them slide. That gives you the two-dimensional structure of the whole thing. Then these sections get taken and get routed through two other technologies, which are called MRFISH and imaging mass cytometry, plus a few others as well. And those either give us gene expression or protein expression. A very high resolution, very high multiplicity, so we get all this molecular information. And then we have a lot of computational tools, which were developed between us and the Institute of Astronomy, actually. We needed astronomers to do this because the data size is so large that they knew how to handle them, we did not. All this gets put together into a coherent, integrated model. Uh, and then sort of on the edge, as a periphery to this, we have more traditional method, right? Regular sequencing, single cell sequencing. It's kind of amazing that I refer to single cell sequencing as a traditional method where it's kind of less than 10 years old and it's already considered very cutting edge, but it's almost like what we started from. And so it's, it's a lot of data that then gets put together. Just to give you an idea of the size, the sort of compiled information about a tumor is something like 10 terabytes or something like that. So it's like a couple hundred years of non-stop music. That's great that you defined that. And amazing the multidisciplinary side of you joining up with astronomy to make that work. Well, that, that, that's a nice story, right? Because it's, we were, okay, we're going to stream lots of samples. Each one's going to be a few terabytes of data. And our IT department was like, nervous about it and, and the astronomers were like oh yeah that's wednesday <laughs> i mean the, the the group of people in the cambridge institute of astronomy that we work with their project which is called gaia is to map every single star of the galaxy so that's the scale of data they work with right so we said all right do, do you want to just take this and convert it to the galaxy inside if you want and and they already had very good connections because actually a lot of the 
uh, image analysis challenges that you have there are not that different from the image analysis that you have in microscopy. So they, they were able to very usefully convert this, but that's actually not the only interdisciplinary thing we do. I mean, we work with chemists, so obviously trying to improve technologies, there's quite a bit of material chemistry, organic chemistry that's involved. Uh, and the virtual reality project, we actually work with video game designers. I was going to ask about that. That's really interesting. And how did you make all these connections? Were they just personal connections or did you put feelers out? How did you, how did you find these experts to work with? Um, some of them were already known. So chemistry, we have the black, the Shankabana Subramanian, which is one of the best DNA chemists in the world. Uh, he's in Cambridge and he's part of our uh, institute as well. So obviously that connection was straightforward to make. The astronomy had already started collaborating with one of the members of our team, Carlos Caldas. So there was a smaller scale, but already existing collaboration there, and we just scaled it up a lot. The virtual reality was a lot weirder. Uh, that was a random acquaintance of Greg with somebody in CRUK, which had seen a random presentation. And then we wrote an email to this person, Owen Harris, saying, do you want to do this? And he actually thought it was a scam. <laughs> sort of deleted it right away. We had to sort of write him again. They said, no, the, I, I'm not doing this. I, I, don't, I think it's crazy. And then, you know, we basically told him, you know what? We're just going to pay you a ticket to come to Cambridge and just talk with us and see the lab. Worst case, you just get free dinner. And they came and they saw the project and, and it was hooked in. And then they actually spinned out a small company to work on the virtual reality side of that. So interesting that it, it produced the company as well. Amazing collaboration. How does the IMAX-T fit in with the ICM vision, would you say? I think that the IMAX-T sort of sits a little bit ahead of everything, if you want. Because if you're thinking from a very translational and clinical point of view, the grand challenge is not the project that is going to produce immediate new therapies or immediate new diagnostic tools or, or insight. It's, it's a basic research and a discovery tool. And I can imagine, I mean, we, we all can imagine and we hope that some subset of what we do will eventually convert to, to diagnostics, but that will be sort of in a way that the follow-up phase. So the way I see is that we have put together all this infrastructure to learn a lot more about tumors work and about how tumors evolve. Uh, with this knowledge, we're going to take a subset of this infrastructure. So we're not going to get the whole million uh, scale, multi-genomic, multi-transcriptomic profiling, but maybe we're going to identify a subset of, I don't know, 20, 30 markers that make a signature that very clearly identify tumors that need a different type of therapy. And that's going to go down into diagnostic, that's going to go down into, into clinics. So it, I see it as a knowledge generator and as a generator of potential signature and marker panels uh, and ideas that then get followed up and convert into a lot of things that then fit into the integrative medicine aspect. Broadly, I think that the idea is almost edging on personalized medicine. The idea that uh, a lot of tumors, not maybe every tumor, but a lot of tumors are different and the difference depends a lot on the interplay between a specific patient and a specific tumor. And if you understand how these things work, uh, then you can design a therapy that's much more tailored. Uh, the sort of dream that I have is that patient will go into surgery, tumors will be excised, it will go through some 
anything that will resemble our pipeline while the patient is recovering from the surgery. By the time the patient is recovered from the surgery, data is back and the doctor can use it to design the best possible therapy course for that specific patient. That's where I would like to get. It's going to maybe take another five, six years to get there, but, but I think that's the trajectory. And, and we're already seeing some pretty clear evidence that some of the technologies that we use, like imaging mass cytometry, for instance, there are actually clinical trials already that are using it. Yeah, so it becomes another data pipeline, really, into the integrated cancer medicine vision. Yeah, it becomes another data pipeline, and then I, I might see it as a, as a generator of knowledge, kind of like if you think that the moonshot... Uh, I'm going to the moon generated tens of different technologies that kept uh, being then introduced into normal life on the earth for like decades, decades after. I think the grand challenge is something going in that direction. Actually, a very good example of it is that there's a new project launched by the Welcome Trust, which is called Leap, which is much more translational. They have a very clear aim, which is building a predictor which will guess with 80% accuracy whether a triple negative breast cancer will or will not recur. And that, that led in five years. So that's a very concrete target with a very big implication of therapy. And we are doing that now. We got the award for doing it. And the technology that fits into it, it's largely technology that we have developed with the Grand Challenge. So actually, CRUK likes to talk about that as a child of the Grand Challenge because it's almost like, okay, we've got this thing done. We've got this knowledge done. Now we can do all these other cool things that actually are going to have an impact. What are the challenges of this type of research? I can answer on different levels. There's the technological challenges. In that is that all these technologies that we use, they were basically at the stage when there were one or two papers demonstrating them in one laboratory, the laboratory that invented them on one type of tissue. So that's, that's the level of cutting edge that those technologies were. We had to make them robust. We had to make them work on a different type of tissue and we had to stream them together. That wasn't trivial because the technology that used proteins uh, as a step required destroying everything that was not protein. The technology that was measuring RNA as a step required removing all the proteins. So it wasn't trivial to find a way to connect them all together. The technology that produced the sections wasn't compatible with any of those other two things. So th there was a lot of technical challenges. It was like, okay, we, we, we want to go to the moon. We're kind of at the point of having a, you know, a hammer and nails and try to, to put together things. But, but that, I mean, it, again, it, it was what the job was. It was what we were given the grant to do. And, 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 that, and we knew we had the right people to do it. The challenge, the level of logistics and organization was that we have uh, about 10 laboratories, uh, which span something like six time zones or seven time zones. And we had to make this work, right? Some of these people hadn't met together, so we had to make them meet together. Some of these people didn't speak the same language. I mean, they all spoke English, but they didn't speak the same technology language, right? The, the astronomers had no idea what genomic coverage was or other things. And, and I had no idea what a shader was in, you know, virtual reality language. So I think there was a lot of time that had to be invested by everybody to learn everybody else's language in a way. Uh, and then there was the heroic job of the project manager, which is sort of the unsung heroes of this. People that take care of scheduling the meetings, uh, making sure that people go to the meetings and think about plans and, and arranging things. And we, we had the luck. I mean, the first one was um, Ilaria Falciatori, which is now moved to a startup. Currently, we have had a Rushmore. They are incredibly good and they took on a job that was incredibly difficult. I mean, also... Um, Erica McKenzie, Sylvia Zula. I mean, we had quite a few people 
coming around and, and doing the job. And then all of this sort of eventually ended up uh, solving this giant logistical issue, which was making this thing work. The project obviously spans many different disciplines and geographical locations. Could you tell me any more about perhaps some of the opportunities and challenges you didn't plan for at the beginning of the project or something that's, that's come out of the project as a byproduct? Challenges that I didn't plan for at the beginning of the project. I mean, I don't think anybody was thinking that in such a collaborative project that require constant meetings, constant interaction, sending samples, 2019 happened. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, that little thing. <laughs> no, that, that, that little thing where, you know, traveling the world, basically ground to, to zero. People could still go to work, but in different countries, the world was missed anything between six and nine months and, and nobody could talk anymore. We basically didn't have any in-person meetings for two years. So we had to adjust, lo lots of Zooming, lots of finding new ways to collaborate. That, that was definitely a challenge. Unexpected outputs of this, I would say that some technologies that sounded really, really viable at the beginning ended up to be more problematic, but some other things that we didn't initially consider turned out to be really useful. And some collaborations that we started, they are sort of the gift that keeps giving, right? Even now that the grand challenge is finishing, there are a few of the laboratories where we have these collaborations that have now produced another two or three grants that we're sort of exploring. And it's, it's really the fact that we have started the number of friendship and really close contacts, uh, which now suddenly makes stuff that wasn't possible before possible. It's taken on a life of its own. Almost. It's taken a life of its own and, and there's no stopping it. I mean, the, the, the company made for the virtual reality, they're branching off, they're launching the software, but they're thinking about keep going and essentially producing a viewer for three-dimensional data that, again, it's slowly going to take life of its own. We're doing the ovarian project, the welcome leave that I was talking about. Uh, and even from understanding, from doing all this work and understanding the limitations of the technologies we are working with, we are actually in the position where we are figuring out, okay, what is the next, next step, right? I told you at the beginning, the dream is a box where you put in a tumor and the stuff comes out. So we are starting to think now how that box can actually look like, because we understand now what are the features that this box has to have inside. So there's, there's a whole legacy of innovation that I think we are starting now on this long end of the Grand Challenge in a way. Amazing. Can anyone experience the IMXT project? Well, yes, there's a, there's a few ways. So people can, we are open for business again, so people can come and visit us. And actually, I mean, I'm, I'm not joking, people do that. Uh, Cancer Research UK and the CI specifically are very open. So literally anyone can come and say, oh, I'm interested in doing a visit and we are going to organize a visit. So that's a way if you happen to be, you know, in Cambridge or, or close by. We are actually part of a museum exhibition. So there is a museum exhibition that was in Birmingham for a while. Now it's at the London Science Museum, which is called Cancer Revolution is all about uh, hope and new therapies and then what cancer is and we're actually featured in that so people can go at the, there's a recording of the virtual reality there's a, there's a description of the project so people can go see that the virtual reality itself is about to come up so we're expecting it to come up around october which means it's going to be freely downloadable with a few data sets that they've generated in there and that actually runs on consumer pcs if, if anybody who has a, a virtual reality headset for video games at home can actually download it and look at our data. Um, we're going to both have our 
some amount of raw data in there, but we're also going to have some interpreted data sets, which are a bit more explanatory. Actually, we are sort of thinking of branching that part of the project towards education as well, sort of to, to build it into a way that people can, can use to learn how, how tumors are made. So yeah, there are there are a few ways where if people is interested can uh, can get some more information and so on. Just contact the CIUK Cambridge Institute or the Cambridge. No, they, they, they can contact the CIUK Cambridge Institute. Uh, we have a website on the Cancer Grant Challenge website that there's a sub page and they have a an office that's that's very active in them passing information back to us so that that, that they can contact them. I mean. I, somebody's interested, they can contact me and I'll, I'll try to answer as well as I can. We are very open to, to interacting, but outreach and, and interaction with, with the communities is a big part of this. It was actually mandated by the project, right? CRUK told us we, they wanted us to do this, but it's also something that a lot of the people that's involved really genuinely like doing. So we, we, we have done a TEDx at some point, uh, uh, we have been at the um, Cambridge Science Week, so we've Whenever there is some event where there's there's this kind of outreach and connection opportunities, we, we try to be there as much as we can. So you've talked is about the future of this project with the box. How do you see that coming to fruition? How how do you see the project continuing? We are working quite closely with CRUK to see if there's a way of keeping a legacy going on. So obviously we've got all this infrastructure, all this all this system that we hope we'll continue to some extent to, to exist even after the end of the grand challenge, even as a sort of service to other research project. We're sort of thinking about what's the best way to, to make that happen. As I said, we've got a number of research projects, some of which still very basic research, some of which are a bit more applied that are branched off of this and they are going to keep going for three years, four years, something like that. So it's, again, it's a gift that keeps on giving. So we're going to continue going there. And a lot of it is going to then sort of get closer to the sort of medicine aspect of it. it. It doesn't hurt that the Cambridge Research Hospital is being planned now. And we have very good contacts with the people that, that are behind it. I mean, the, um, opposite Richard Gilbertson, which is sort of chairing that, is, is, is our colleague and we're collaborating together. The person that's been selected as the lead nurse of the hospital is our patient advocate of the Grand Challenge project. And we're thinking about a way of introducing the virtual reality there as a sort of permanent uh, exposition that the patients themselves can actually use. So we, we are looking basically on, on all the possible ways that, that we have to keep this alive. And, and then in terms of technology development, as I was saying, we are starting to look at the next, next generation of technologies. We have got uh, what's called a pioneer grant which is a grant for sort of high-risk, high-gain uh, development uh, projects. And uh, we are using it to develop a bunch of new technologies that ideally should sort of take us to the next step. The future, at least, you know, the next three, four years are, are extremely busy, I think, on all aspects. Yep. Sounds like you're going to have your hands full. <laughs> are you using virtual reality in any other research projects or are there any plans to do so in the future? So currently we're actually trying to gauge exactly that question. I mean, we, we have run a pretty big demo here in the Institute in the last couple of months, basically showing virtual reality to everybody that wanted to see it. And that was quite interesting because it's a tool that, although it was built for our type of data, it can be adapted very easily to other type of data. It can be used for any type of microscopy. It can be used for regular single cell sequencing, which the Institute does a lot. Even can be used for some more basic technologies, uh, 
on uh, like flow cytometry and uh, and so on. Although, I mean, I said basic and probably the head of flow cytometry is going to beat me up for that because they're, they're really getting way more advanced than they used to be now. So, I mean, we, we actually have a lot of interest in adapting the virtual reality to answer slightly different questions. Actually, one thing that I was talking about was to use it to analyze uh, multidimensional uh, COVID datasets, where we were basically looking at the new response of patients to, uh, to SARS-CoV-2. And of course, the company, which we are trying to, to get funded now, will then offer this to, to any research group that, that is interested and supported. So I think that there's a lot of potential, there's a lot of interest. Currently, that's constrained by the limits of human body and the human mind, meaning there's like three or four people doing it and we cannot do everything. That's actually being a perpetual blessing and curse of the project. Like we have always had a lot more ideas and a lot more collaboration avenues that we had resources to pursue. It's not just a matter of money, it's a matter of space, it's a matter of people, it's a matter of just energy. So we had to take the hard decision at some point to say, okay, this has to go on the back burner, otherwise we're going to lose focus, we're not going to get to the end line. So a lot of those things I hope that now we're going to manage to, to re-expand onto, and virtual reality for other research types is, is one of them. How does this fit in with your broader research? I can answer this uh, both for Greg's laboratory and for myself. So for, for Greg's laboratory, cancer research is about maybe a half or a third of, of what the laboratory does. It has always been a laboratory with a lot of experience in, in cancer research, going back to when Greg was actually one of the discoverers of one of the main oncology. The other part of it, there's a pretty significant group doing uh, small RNA biology and generally basic RNA biology. And there's another pretty large group of people that sort of doing technology development, trying to inventing new methods. But the technology development really sort of fits back into the cancer as well, because a lot of these technologies then are applied to these other two fields. So I, I, I would say probably it's about half of what they're doing. For my own focus, uh, I've been doing technology development and specifically in the field of spatial profiling mapping since I have started my career essentially. So right now that's about 100% of, of what I do. But of course, it's a very broad 100%. And, and going forward, I'm actually very interested both in looking at cancer, but also in using these technologies to understand the physiological state of organisms. There's always this flip side that you can study cancer all you want, but you need to understand that how the normal tissue works in order to really then understand how the cancer development works. So I, I think that what I'm interested in looking ahead is, is to continue working on cancer, but then also using these technologies to look at how tissues work in, the, in their normal state. My last question, I guess, is where do you see integrated cancer medicine taking us in the next five to 10 years? What's your take on that? Five to 10 years. Okay, that, that, that's quite a bit of role to play with. I think in five years, uh, a lot of the technologies that are now research-based only, I think we're going to see them bleeding into, into practice, bleeding into, into therapy. Some of the technologies we are working with will do so. I think imaging mass cytometry will quite a few of the other things we are doing certainly will. And I would expect that some of these newer things that we're starting to look at eventually will as well. So definitely there will be, I think, an approach to cancer therapy that is a bit more customized for the patient. I think we're going to start seeing the, the fruits of that finally in the next five years. In the next 10 years, uh, 
I think that that's, you know, it's, it's kind of carrying that even further. And I think that it's, uh, we're going to be in a situation in which we're going to be able, hopefully, to, to diagnose a lot of cancers faster and to have a much better understanding on, uh, on what happens in them after they've been diagnosed. And then I think that perhaps the thing that could have the biggest impact, that that's not a prediction, it's, it's a whole. The, the two things that I believe are going to have the biggest impact are diagnosis, because the, the, the fastest solution to any cancer is always yanking it out, if it's, but it's still small. The other thing is understanding really the metastatic process, because ultimately, for the majority of cancer, what's really causing uh, more mortality, morbidity, is the metastatic process. And uh, for something that's so important, we still understand very, very many in of it. Part of it is actually because a lot of the metastatic process happens uh, when we don't see it. We see metastases when they're big, by that time it's kind of late. Uh, it's not only late to treatment, it's also late to understand how they started. Because at that point, the tissue is already all messed up. So I think that some of the technologies that we are working on now will allow people, will allow scientists and doctors to look at metastasis much earlier in time when they're just starting. And that in turn will, will allow them to get a much better understanding of what you have to do when you treat the primary tumor to try to minimize the risk of metastasis happening. And then I think that that's going to have a pretty big impact. I think that 10 years is probably a good time frame for them, 5 to 10, because the, the, there's understanding that needs to happen first, and then there has to be bleeding out into, into therapy. So it's, uh, it's probably a little bit longer than just taking the technologies that we have now and just putting them into therapy directly. But I think that that's what's really going to have a lot of impact on, on people. Thank you so much. It just remains for me to say thank you for recording this really interesting conversation with me this afternoon. Thanks to you. That was uh, great to have a chance to, to chat and to talk about things. If you want to find out more about the work of the Mark Foundation Institute for Integrated Cancer Medicine, please visit our website at www.integratedcancermedicine.org where you can find details of the ICM vision, all the current research, clinical trials, resources, publications, and team information. You can keep up to date with our latest news and events, and you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you would like more information about the work of the CRUK Cambridge Centre, please go to www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk or you can connect with us on Twitter using our handle at CRUK Cam Centre. Thanks for listening and do join us again soon.